You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Hello, First. At First, we are a people who first follow Jesus. That's what we're about. We are about lifting up the name of God, being full of his spirit, but that is who we are as a group of people, worshiping God. And you know, we've been through a lot. We've been pretty resilient through all the things that have been happening in this fluid, ever-changing circumstance that we find ourselves in. And you'll find at first a lot of different people, people with different backgrounds, different experiences, different beliefs. They have chosen different parties, chosen different persuasions, And yet we've figured out that we can disagree and still work together, that we can be a a, a group of people that is focused in on following Jesus. And so if you're looking for a group of people who are on that kind of a journey together of following Jesus, we want you to be a part of this group of people. You know, with COVID-19 pandemic, it just still seems like it's going on, right? Continues. We have faced the difficulties of a contentious election and division, it seems like, on every side. And all of that has just generated this collective, emotional, psychological, spiritual fear. We almost wonder what's next. And it it takes a toll on us. And I don't know about you, but this summer it's just been like, okay, we got to get out of town. We got to. This summer we can travel. Let's do something. And you might be like the the couple that was leaving town earlier this summer and they had their vacation plans set, but one of them had a tooth issue. So this husband and wife took off and the husband's like, look, I need a dentist that will take care of this tooth. He finds a dentist. They show up, tells the dentist, look, I just want this tooth out. I don't want any Novocaine. Just get it out. We're going to miss our flight. And the dentist said, seriously, no, no vacation? He's like, yes, just take this tooth out. It's like, well, I have to warn you, it's going to be painful and difficult. He said, it's okay. All right, well, let's get started. Honey, show him where it is. <laughs> yeah, it's fine if it's somebody else's pain, right? No problem at all. No, no vacation. We got a trip to be on. We got places to be, honey. Let's just take this thing out. Well, that would probably put me in a state of fear. But when we we think about fear, and there's lots of ways that we could flip through dictionaries or encyclopedias to talk about fear, but there's this just impending fear of something about to happen, an anticipation or an expectation that someone's going to harm you or that something is going to happen. You get this sense that there is danger around and you have a sense of dread and overwhelmed. Maybe you feel a high level of anxiety about the outcome of something or about the safety of someone that you love. Or if we went to very old and archival type definitions, it would be this fear mixed with deep reverence, this awe, this wonder about what might happen. And fear fear gets used a lot of ways. Fear is a motivator for sure. Kind of like the woman who came home to her house in the midst of being robbed. And it just caught her off guard. The thief had his back to her, and she didn't know what to do. She was a very religious woman, so she just started calling out Scripture. 
She calls out the scripture that's familiar to us. She says, Acts 2.38. And the thief just freezes. It doesn't move. And she's kind of stunned that this actually worked. So she gets her phone. She calls the police. They come. He's still frozen there. Well, the police are dumbfounded about how this woman got this armed thief to stop. He's like, well, well sure. She said she had an axe and 238. I wasn't going anywhere. Fear is a motivator. We know this. It can motivate people to act or to not act in the case of this woman. The army will use rank coupled with fear to get people to work together. Because you can't have in the field uh, soldiers questioning the orders that are coming. You've got to act. And so fear mixed with a little bit of rank gets people to do what they need to do. Um, Do parents use fear? Yes, we use fear. Threats about what not looking both ways before you cross or threats about waiting until whatever we want them to do, they wait until the right age or time or place for that to take place. So yeah, we, we make use of fear. Do preachers make use of fear? Yes, I'm sad to say, sometimes preachers make use of fear to get people to repent, to change their lives. It's definitely a motivator. So, with, with all of this fear that this streaming around us, I kind of was scratching my head thinking, where do we need to go this fall? As we felt this sense of confinement, where, where are the stories of Scripture? Where are the places that we can go to to help us to, to lib, liberate ourselves from this confinement, liberate ourselves from the fear that is just constantly on the bandwidth of our lives? And so I'm thankful to our kids, to Amanda and Children's Ministry, our kids' clubhouse, because as we had a great VBS this summer, I know many of you were involved in making that happen, uh, the theme was Wilderness Wanderings. And that just got me thinking about what led up to the wilderness wanderings, the stories beforehand. And it drew me into this story where God promises a couple that they would be this massive family. And they, they weren't even a family family, they were just an infertile couple. You remember them, Abraham and Sarah. It took 25 years of empty promises of God telling this old man he was going to be a father, and at age 100, he becomes a father and has Isaac. And then Isaac marries Rebecca, And they have a child, a child, Jacob, the trickster. Jacob's name gets changed from trickster, Jacob, to Israel, one who wrestles with God. And this is the story of these people who culminate with Joseph at the end of Genesis, the guy who gets in good with Pharaoh. What a great story. of of Joseph, this Hebrew that gets kicked out of his own family by his brothers, because he's fairly pretentious at a young age and the youngest of brothers, and winds up second in command because he helps Pharaoh develop a program of relief for a famine of grain storage. And, And not only does Egypt feed the world, but the world now is beholding to Egypt. Egypt owns them. Well, that's the background of our story for today. And if you want, you can stand with me as I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 1, a story that begins in quite a bit of turmoil. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 1. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. 
They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Look, these Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks upon the, the Israelites. They made their lives bitter with service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they opposed upon them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, it shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because of the midwives, fear of God, God gave them families. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a story that's definitely in turmoil, where time has passed and everything has flipped. The people feel forgotten by God and they're afraid of what might happen. One Pharaoh has replaced another Pharaoh, has replaced another Pharaoh, and their status in this partnership with Pharaoh in Egypt completely vaporizes and goes away. No longer are they on the inside. And what we see in this story is a leader, Pharaoh, who acts in fear. His leadership is driven by fear. And he sees the size and the power and the, the multitude of this group of Hebrews, and he is afraid. He's afraid of them. He's afraid of what they're doing. And so the relationship changes. A relationship that before had been something of a partnership now becomes a relationship of domination a master to a slave, a superior to an inferior, and they are attacked by this Pharaoh. He does a couple of things. Did you notice the first thing that he did? Is he just ratchets up all the oppression that's on them. Their workload is increased, the labor is made more hard and more difficult. He tries to attack them really where it counts, to take this role of the master and push it to the max. But it doesn't work. They keep getting stronger. They keep getting more powerful. So he takes this second approach of pulling aside the midwives, and he's going to eliminate them, eliminate the boys, a silent massacre, something of a slaughter. Now, this image for me is pretty interesting because we get the, the picture of a very powerful world power leader 
whose name we don't know, who's intimidated by this group of slave people. Yet they're the ones that are powerful, not weak, but strong. And Pharaoh is not stupid. And he fears, if you look in verse 9, that their numbers are increasing. Again in verse 9, he fears their strength and their power. Or in verse 10, he fears that they might join up with the enemies and fight them. Or in verse 10, he fears that they might try to escape. And so it's very ironic that the underdog is really the power. It's Pharaoh who calls them the Israelites for the first time and points to them as being a powerhouse. And it's the ruler who's afraid. It's the ruler who has to be sneaky. And in this story, God's absent. God's absent from the lips of this Pharaoh. God's seemingly absent from this group of slave people. And Pharaoh gives the order to kill all of these boys. But in verse 17, the women hear this and they ignore it. Because they respect, they fear God more than they do this Pharaoh. I mean, they respect life. After all, that's their job. They're midwives. And so they respect these women that are giving birth. They respect these babies that are coming. They respect these future generations, but it all grows out of their fear and love of God. The women, Shifra and Pua, do not fear the loss of their own life. They don't fear what Pharaoh can do to them. And God looks upon them in verse 21 and blesses them with families and multiplies them. Well, in this sermon series, I want to look at fears like this. Different ways that we can be guided and directed by fear. Because in our contemporary conversations, in our contemporary culture, we're very much driven by fear. And sometimes that fear is helpful. And sometimes it's very unhelpful. And you know that I'm, I'm not the kind of preacher who sidesteps difficult topics. I, I want to look at things that are challenging and hard. And so when we look at our fears, we might look at a lot of directions. We might say, you know, I'm afraid for the morality of my children. It's a normal thing that, that religious people have. Or I'm afraid of the mortality of the people that I love. Something's going to happen to them, that they might get a disease or die. Or I'm afraid of my own finances. Well, the fear that I want us to look at is a fear that gets raised by this story proper. And it's one that is a difficult one. So you have to buckle your seatbelts. It's a word that is very much charged and loaded with meaning. It is a hot topic. When people say the word abortion, guns get loaded, essentially, right? And here in this story, I realized I couldn't step away from the fact that that is what this Pharaoh is asking these midwives to do, is at the moment of birth to take the life of the child. Whenever abortion is brought up, it's used a lot of times to generate fear or to gather people to your side or to create a black and white answer. And as Christians, it probably goes without saying, but I want to say it, we are a group of people that value life. That's who we are. That's what we are about. All life is sacred. And that's why we're not in favor of murder. That's why we're hesitant with war. We don't like the death penalty. And abortion is quite difficult. 
But even when you come to a difficult topic like this, or at least I, whenever I come to a difficult topic, I want to think about it. I don't want to just think about it in the ways that I always have. I want to be challenged and push myself. And so to look at things not in terms of positions, but what might I be thinking or doing that might need a little bit of challenging. So I will tell you, and you know this, I don't have to tell you, but there are serious and sincere Christians who are pro-life. And there are serious and sincere Christians who are pro-choice. And that can be troubling to you, depending upon where you find yourself, but it's true. There are Christians who look at this in different ways. And whenever I look at it, I kind of have my own little list of things that bother me about this topic. Now, this list probably won't be your list. You probably haven't thought about these things, of things that bother you whenever this topic comes up. But here are mine, so I just throw them out to you. I kind of get trouble whenever people treat abortion in a very flat way, where it's always the same, all the circumstances, it doesn't matter, it's just the same. It doesn't matter if this child is impregnated because of incest. It, it doesn't matter if this young woman is impregnated because she was raped. Or, you know, it just doesn't matter because this sexual encounter was not consensual, but it's resulted in a child. I, I just get trouble when every abortion, every discussion is treated as if it's very flat. Now, that may not be your concern, but that's something that I think about. Another thing that, that gets to me is laws that I think are well-intentioned. They're, they're meant to pursue life, but these well-intentioned laws sometimes cause pain. And perhaps you haven't thought about this or don't know this, but there are couples who want to have a child, Christian couples, who find out at some point along in the pregnancy that the child is inviable. It's missing organs, maybe lungs, where it will never take a breath, maybe a heart, maybe brain, something where it is not going to live. And especially in Texas, if they're to decide to let this baby go, they must sign a document that says they understand that they are having an abortion. And so Christian couples have to step back and say, well, I guess we must wait and try to deliver this full term. So one trauma is mounted upon with another trauma, and well-intentioned laws make that even more difficult for that woman. Again, that may not be something that you've thought about. It may not be on your list. But another one for me is lawmakers. Lawmakers, a lot of them men, who are very vocal about abortion, but then when opportunities to take care of women in terms of health or as they process these very difficult moments at the age of 14 or 15 or 16, they want nothing to do with any legislation to help the health, the psychological well-being of those women. Well, another one for me, a fourth one, is whenever this topic is used as the topic that provides the hook upon which we are to judge every leader, that it's the test. And if they pass this test, if they wave the right flag, whether it's pro-life or pro-choice, then we'll let them do or vote or be whatever they want as long as it's followed this little hook. Now, that's just my list. I offer it to you as my list. It's probably not yours. You might even disagree with it. 
I think that as Christians, we can value a number of things that I think we fit on, fit together, that might be more similar. And one of those is that Christians of all stripes can agree that abortion is not the ideal. God is a giver of life. And so that path is not preferable. It's not the choice that we would want because God is a God of life. And I would like to see pro-life Christians and pro-choice Christians be able to work together in leading the world and protecting the lives of babies and protecting the lives of mothers. Doesn't that make sense for Christians to lead the way in valuing life? Well, that's one I think that we can agree on. Another one is this is about women. This is about women's bodies. Man's part in the pregnancy is very little. A man's body is not impacted. And so I think it's important for us to be listening to women. Maybe like the husband in the joke that I said at the front, who's more than happy for his wife to get her tooth out without Novocaine. It's really easy for men to step forward and have the answer, but yet not have to deal with anything that's going on inside of their own body. Well, I think women need to provide input in this, more so than men. Well, a third thing that I think that we can agree on is that the circumstances that lead to this are different. Whenever a child is violated by someone in their own family and turns up pregnant, they may not have the resources to be able to know what's happened to them, let alone determine what to do with what's inside of them. That is a painful, traumatic event. Same thing with a youth who's been violated, who's been raped. They may not have the psychological, emotional well-being to know how to deal with this, and they need help. All of these circumstances, these different encounters that may have consent and they may not, are difficult. Now that's pretty heavy, right? We almost need a deep breath there. There, there is some good news. I don't know if you realize it, but abortion has been declining since 1980. In 1980, 25 out of 1,000 women who were pregnant would end in abortion. In 2018, the most recent numbers, that number is 11 out of 1,000. Again, one life is too many because all are valuable, but that trend is a downward trend. In fact, of abortions today, 38.6% are medical in nature. They're not just on a whim of, well, I don't really want this. There is a lot of pain that's wrapped up in this, of decisions about what to do with this life. So if I had to poke maybe at each side, I think I might poke at pro-life folks who are prone to grab on to late-term abortions and speak of them in very graphic terms when that is less than 1% of all the abortions that take place, to treat that as the norm for all others. I also would want to poke at pro-choice folks who, if you ever talk about reducing the number of abortions, they don't want to hear it. They dismiss it. Or if you were to talk about the moral and the ethical problems of abortion, you get dismissed and pushed to the side. Folks, this is a charged and difficult topic. Now, 
You might feel like we've gone far away from our story, right? Go back to this story, this amazing story from Exodus chapter 1, where we have a man, a ruler, a pharaoh, king of the world power Egypt, who has it within his authority to do what he wants to. And he uses his power to begin to exterminate and to kill. But women, these women whose gender is the one that gives birth to babies, these women choose life. They choose to protect the lives of these mothers and protect the lives of these babies. I think the principle that's there is that God values life and the path of life. God values those who respect those that seek him. And as believers, we can be the kind of people that that act and pursue laws that protect the lives of babies and protect the lives of those mothers who are in a very vulnerable position. I love the fact of the strength of these women. It boggles my mind that this story that's not a thousand years old or two thousand, but maybe as many as four thousand years old, we don't know who the Pharaoh is. We don't know his name. Could be Ramses II. We could sit around and speculate all day long. We don't know. But the names of the women, we've got. Shifra and Pua, who respected and loved God so much that they were willing to do what put their own life in the balance. And what I see in this is a contrast between the kind of leadership of Pharaoh that's driven by fear, that maybe uses fear to manipulate people, and the leadership of these women that's also driven by fear, but it's a different kind of fear. It's a fear of God, a respect for God and what God is about, a respect that doesn't value one's own life, but respects God as the Holy One, the Sacred One. So when we think about the fears that are in our lives, that may be many and manifold. The one that we've talked about the most may not be the one you're focused in on. How is it that we take this fear of God and not get worked up by other people who might try to push our buttons and control us, but how do we truly have the fear of God? Well, I think you can do three things. First, you can take that fear that you have and hold it in the wisdom of God, much like we've done today to evaluate it and look at it from all sides. Number two, make God your ultimate fear, where there is nothing that concerns you more than respect for God and following what God would guide. And then three, at some point we have to act. So we act in that respect and wisdom of God and we move forward in trust. Well, again, this series, I promise, will not be this heavy. I'll tell you, these midwives kind of snuck up on me to bring up a very difficult topic. But as we look at the fear of God, I think it's appropriate in this time of chaos and disorder when our airwaves are filled with so much that tends to divide us and separate us that we focus in on the fear of God as the beginning point of wisdom so that we can be confident in who we are, confident in whose we are, clear about where we're going, and full of joy to know that so much about this world that's so difficult, we don't have to have the perfect answer for because we are those who follow Jesus.
Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Scripture. And Father, we pray that we can come before you in humility and honor. We thank you that words that were written thousands upon thousands of years ago come to us and give us the names of these bold women, Shifra and Pua. Thank you for the ways that they followed you and loved you. Help us in our own time and in our own place to do the same thing. To risk ourselves for the good of others. To not be motivated by the terror kind of fear, but the respect of you. Fear of God. We thank you that as our worship continues, we can gather around this table, a table that we don't deserve to sit at and receive the body and blood of Jesus to remind us of who we are and to remind us of where every breath comes from. Father, we pray all this through the mighty name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.